So we have uh, started to explore the four foundations of mindfulness. And we are beginning to sense the subtlety, uh, the increased subtlety of each foundation as we enter it. Although we've only entered formally the first foundation. First foundation is uh, very much an invitation to begin. It's also, it's the sort of the starting gate, but it's more than that, actually. It's, it's a very interesting choice of, of where we place our attention in the body <clears throat> because it holds uh, so much personal um, ownership, of course, in terms of my body. It also uh, is an obvious form of decay uh, and pain. And it, when upon entering it, it also shows us that the emotional tone that we thought was exclusively within the mind is also intoned within the fabric of the cells of the body. And so there's a lot that we learn about the conjunction or, or um, joining of the body and the mind uh, and just entering this organism. It allows the settledness and the stability and the groundedness that we need uh, to bring forth a often meager attempt uh, to establish attention. And so uh, it's the, sort of the, the beginning uh, place where mindfulness is encouraged. Now I want to just speak a little bit about mindfulness as opposed to awareness. Uh, but uh, whenever we start, almost everyone starts by uh, just opening a little bit of one's attention. The aperture of our camera, of our sight, is very, uh, has a very small diameter. And it's not very steady in its, uh, in its resolution. It whips around, much like a flashlight would be scattered in a dark room. It doesn't really light upon anything. And so we have to uh, encourage a stability of attention within this body that allows it to steady itself so that the light can actually see what it's shining upon rather than just whipping from one thought to another. So as we do that, uh, we get a sense that mindfulness is under our control. And early on, it feels very much an effortful adventure to establish our mindfulness upon whatever it is that we want to look, look at. And uh, in this tradition, it's encouraged on the breath or other physical sensations that may predominate over the breath as a way to steady that whipping flashlight so that it can actually see the nature of what it shines upon. And nothing is understood until we can see. May I say, this is a seeing game. It has everything to do with seeing. And so until the, until the uh, steadiness of attention is sufficient so that we can actually see as opposed to just think, then we are pretty much uh, at the, uh, live at the expense of the f- whatever thought might be arising. 
But gradually over time, and it's a very plottable over time, that is if you have length of time on the breath and number of breaths seen, you would see a, a graph that slopes upward. But it wouldn't look like a straight line. It would look like a very jagged peak and valley graph that slopes in a positive direction. And it's, so there's a science to just bringing the attention back to bear upon a single object. What begins to happen is an allurement to that steadying attention because when we aren't thinking, uh, when we're actually seeing, as opposed to thinking about things, the drama of our life settles down. And there is an abiding calm, quietude, that comes in that feels very fulfilling if we have only known our lives to be full of the discursiveness of our th thoughts. And so this, is, this pulls us in in a much tighter range around the subject, and it encourages further examination of what we are doing, and it seems to be an otherworldly delight that we hadn't expected. In the beginning, all we feel is the tension and the effort necessary to establish our attention upon anything. And slowly, this begins to develop as a kind of warm bath of attention that feels very settling and relaxing. But it still feels very much under my control. I'm doing it. I try to make the mindfulness continuous. I try to establish it wherever I am. In much of our early practice history, we are uh, kind of leaning into our mindfulness, encouraging it. And if you have noticed, but more importantly, if you're honest with your noticing, you'll see that your efforts are only partially successful. That uh, outside of a rarefied environment like this one, you're not able to be continuously mindful. I don't even have to ask if you are. And there's an important reason for that, which is the second foundation, which is what I'm talking about tonight. But before I get to the second, I want to get us out of this self-effortful mindfulness. So let me, bear with me for a minute or two. So at some point, it dawns on us, again, if we're if what we want is more than the pursuit of a pleasurable environment, inwardly pleasurable environment, which is very seductive, and I would say it siphons off a great number of practitioners just at that level. But if we are truly sincere about seeing, not just uh, relaxing and being comfortable, we'll notice that the more effort we associate with the establish of my, establishment of mindfulness, the less mindfulness we really have uh, to bring forth. And this dichotomy of me being aware and me being unaware seems to be a forever split in our psyche. And to the sense of me, to the egoic sense of me, what I need to do to make my practice Seamless is to bring those two so that there's no gap whatsoever between them. And so the tension arises to bring those 
two together, and lo and behold, they stay very far apart. We don't realize that what keeps them apart is the effortful attention we are bearing down upon this process, not yet at least. The sense of self arises to the occasion and makes it more of a, a power motive in which we're going to bring this together. I can do this on and on. Never realizing that the sense of self is the embodiment of ignorance and the absence of mindfulness itself. And therefore, whenever it arises in its majestic form with its power display, you can be assured you're going to forget. Now let me just stop because I said that quickly for you to digest what I just said. But that is in fact incongruent with what we see now. Now what drives it now? Because if the sense of self with its need to be all, uh, to be powerful in its own mastery, spiritual mastery, begins to sense that this is not within his or her control, where do we go? Where do we go? Hopefully where we go, and again, this siphons off a great number of students. We've already left the majority of people behind. <laughs> is a curiosity about what the sense of self is. Because if it's interrupting, what I sense could be a field of attention, of awareness, then I better know what's going on here. What's going on here? Now, I can stay forever trying to grind it out, and many people do that, and that siphons off another whole group where we just bare knuckle, white knuckle down and try to make this thing work within the tensions of self. And because it feeds a kind of, of, of uh, inadequacy that most of us carry, we just don't feel like we're trying hard enough, no matter how hard we try. In fact, when I was a monk in Burma, the last thing the teacher I saw daily said to me no matter how I reported what I was doing, was please try harder. And after five months, it simply broke my back. It broke my will. I couldn't try any harder. And so when that happens, you let whatever sinks, sinks, and whatever floats, floats. But what happened for me was a growing sense of urgency and sincerity about what the problem really was and that this was not going to be a self-fix-it project. And that was after four intensive years of practice. So this curiosity about what this interference pattern is, you see? that needs to have been stimulated somewhere along the line when you see that you're, you and I are not up to the task of, its own, of, of this completion. We can't complete it. Now there's a wonderful 
paradigm shift that occurs there. But it's not without its despair, believe me. Mostly, we don't have anything to fall back on because that's the only force that we have ever lived with. And so we look behind us and see nothing there. In addition, we have no faith for anything else because we have been driving, the mechanism of our life has been driven through self-motive and self-power. And so there, there can be a, just a sense of helplessness and hopelessness about that. But that hopelessness doesn't stay despondent, it rallies and regroups in terms of its own intention. And this is where the path of questioning and discovery comes into play that's vital, vital for the continuation of this journey. And this is where I think Buddhism is at its best. Because it realizes the nature of that journey and is well, well articulates the uh, arising, the conditional arising that we begin to journey by seeing. And so this sense, this willingness to see becomes heightened, you might say, becomes more urgent. Now, we have been introduced and invited into the body as the first foundation. And if you go there and you begin to feel the power issues of your body and you feel also that you're going to rule the body, not really connect with the body, and, and that you're going to kind of muscle your way through, and that that's going to be your spiritual journey, well, then that you're going to be fixed within the body, within the limits and boundaries that you have already imposed, and you're not going to get out of those. You may feel more subtle. You may develop high degrees of samadhi and samatha, and you may be very calm and all of that. But you, your wisdom will be minimal. But if we since this body, which is really what I think the invitation to do in the first foundation, is to look at this thing free of our knowledge and remembrance so that we invite a wonder into what we see rather than an assurance and a certainty as to what it is. So we enter the body free of the contamination of our opinions. We just come in and look around, not trying to condense it back into what I've always known it to be so that what I'm feeling in here is that old scar tissue when I was young and fell from my bike or whatever it might be, but simply what the experience of it is as itself. And the boundaries of the body begin to become porous. Because the boundary, any boundary, psychic or physical, inside, outside, any boundary is psychologically determined. 
not a reality. I hope, you re I hope we understand that. And therefore, one of what we are meant to do on our journey is to question these boundaries. Mind, body. And so as it, begin, it, it begins to show itself as a single display. And it opens up beyond itself. Because the resistance, the tightness to form and con contain ourselves within an outline consumes enormous amount of psychic energy. Now, we're always confronted by a fear response and leaving any boundary. Why did we set the boundary in the first place? Is because we wanted to know where we were and where the outside of us was. We wanted that boundary represented. And the boundary of the body and the boundary of the mind do just that. So it's like going outside for the first time and not knowing what animals are out there to eat us. We're not sure what life is like if we let go of this boundary. So the only thing that allows us to, to move or transcend a boundary is that your curiosity, your interest is greater than your fear. And that's a, that's a very close, it's very close as to which is going to win out. Sometimes fear wins out, you pull back. You're never defeated, but you, oftentimes you step over the fence, and then you jump back into the fenced-off area, and you go, and then after a little while of anxiety, you think, wow, that was interesting. I wonder what, wow, that was, i got to go back out. And then your curiosity, your interest, has you jump over and take two steps in that direction, before the tension and fear of where you're going brings you back into the fenced-off area. So that's kind of how it goes. Sometimes it goes smoother than that, but for most people there's a lot of jumping over fences. <laughs> but something wonderful happens here, even on the first foundation. Can't you feel it in your body? that something is much grander, much larger than the physical form arising within that grander. Completely arising on its own. Without any sense of self-effort. This is the important point, is that you begin to learn through discovering and releasing that the effortful mindfulness that kept our, our aperture so closed down and tightly warded has now opened to something that is light and refreshing and available. And that wets our, wets our appetite. And you may have had moments of it. It doesn't matter whether you live or abide in it or whether you've just had brief moments of it. Your appetite is wetted. Wetted? Something like that. 
<laughs> is wet. Wetted. Wetted. <laughs> I keep Tina around for <laughs> vocabulary. <laughs> and so does your appetite increase for the wonder. Because as soon as you step out of the boundaries, you're outside of the certainty of yourself. Now you're playing with the stars. Now, we jump back in, back on the saddle, and we kind of bear down and try to make it work inside this thing. And we learn a lot about our emotions, about the physical laws of nature within the body, about illness and death and change and impermanence and all that. But now we're definitely interested in why this thing keeps forming itself back into a separate entity. Because that, that robs the taste of the interconnection we feel when we have dropped the resistance. And the taste of wonder surpasses all taste. So the second foundation is the exploration of the arising of self. Now, again, all along the way, the psychological underpinnings of what we are doing begin to show themselves. And if we have a lot of self-hatred, getting over ourself is exactly what we want to do. But that's not going to be the way through ourself. The way through ourself is to understand ourself, not to try to leap it or to try to circumvent it. And so we have to be aware of the patterns that have us motivated in a particular direction all along the way. So it's a tricky thing. But let's just look for a moment, just the beauty of how this thing works. So I don't feel like I have to talk a lot about feelings. All of us know that feelings in Buddhism traditionally mean pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, vedanas, or feeling tones. They're the first conditioned reference that we place upon an experience. Hear what I just said. This is key. The conditioning comes from us and meets an experience. It's our mind that induces an experience to be pleasant or unpleasant. The experience itself does not intrinsically hold the pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Our mind is conditioned to feel it in that way. And if it were coming from the thing, it would never change. A lima bee would always be hated. But because... <laughs> <laughs> but because over time you can change your likes and dislikes, you'll find that some t over time you may actually begin to like lima beans. 
because you've learned to change that condition pattern. So I don't want to belabor that. That's kind of Dharma 101. Where I want to go is into the projection because the Vedana, the pleasanter, unpleasanter, the response to the experience, the arising of the conditioned feeling is the channel opening between dualism, for dualism. It's the channel opening between me and the thing I'm experiencing. It's the avenue. Now there's a rush down that avenue, that boulevard. Once it has been opened through the feeling of it, through the approach of it. See, there's a, now there's also a psychic orientation to something if something is perceived as pleasant. There's a psychic opening. There's a psychic pulling back if something is unpleasant or there's a confused disarray and un disinterest if something is neutral. Regardless of how we line up to the experience, the, what rushes in to fill the vacuum now created by the dualistic nature of having something we liked is thought. It fills in all the missing pieces. Memory rushes in to make it something. Now, what does it rush into? First of all, remember that the feeling is coming from this side, not from that side, not from the object, but from the conditioned way the sense of I has learned about that object. And the story comes from the sense of self as well. It makes it seem as if there's someone back there that has a memory and history with this object. Because if there's a story about something, there's got to be a storyteller. And so the assumption of someone being back there is because we hear the words being spoken by that something. But it's all coming from us. It's all co not coming from the experience itself. It's not coming from the object. It's being projected onto the object. Nothing holds any value. Nothing holds any worth. I know that seems very despairing, but actually it's very enlightening. Everything is neutral. In fact, substance is made by the words we speak about it. There isn't anything of substance. We just proved that in the body. We learned that what we thought was so physically dense wasn't that way at all. So too, all objects. And so the sense of cr the creative force of the universe is now 
fully on display. The seer and the seen, the hearer and the heard. Each one investing in a feeling. So it's not just having that object. It's the leaning we have towards that object where we want to sustain it because we want to sustain the pleasant feeling that got this whole thing going. So we chase after something pleasant to sustain the contact we have with it. But what are we sustaining? We're sustaining the pleasant feeling that's coming from me projected out onto it as if it were intrinsic to it itself. I don't want to get too technical, but I find that very interesting, that it's the cat chasing its tail. Now, this does nothing unless we see it, right? Does not, that's the reason we come to Dharma Talks, and then we go back and we practice comfort, which most of us, if we're honest with ourselves, or many of us, not, not most of us in this group, but many of us do just that. Because we haven't seen this. We haven't wanted to see it. We want our relationship with life not to be based in emptiness, but to be based in comfort. That's a compelling force forward for all of us. In fact, we fight wars over sustaining our level of cultural comfort. And because we have, are equipped and powerful enough to take more than our share, we keep our army sustained at the height we do. This is not a small thing. So we try to own and possess what is pleasurable, and we try to run away from what is unpleasurable, and in so doing, it possesses us. What we turn from possesses us. So either way, we're being possessed. Possessed with the thoughts of having to get it or possessed with the thought of having to separate ourselves, having to run from it. And we see that. We see that arising. That can be seen. That can be known. When I was a monk, Somebody had written down the 12 lengths of dependent origination. And for two or three years, that was the major theme of my practice. I would just take any two of those lengths and I would pair them. And I would watch how this and that, when this arises, that arises. Now, where this ties into the body, very importantly, is that there's also a physical or psychic leaning that accompanies, accompanies the Vedana. You can feel it. And, that, and so people who are body-centered or body-aware, whose 
foundation is um, the majority of their attention goes with their body, can feel this very slight, almost psychic leaning and movement that corresponds with the avenue opening and the investment into the world of form. So there's a leaning towards and, and as, as the mind tries to leverage itself in an advantageous position to acquire. There's a leaning away when there's an aversive response. You can feel it. Or there's a kind of muddled confusion and no groundedness at all when we're uninterested. We're just lost in thought because that's the escape route to the neutral is just spinning our wheel. So there's this possibility now to begin to open this thing up beyond the encrypted and self-fulfilling way that we first tried to get it going with the use of our own self-energy and effort. When we realize that the sense of self is an ephemeral, ephemeral arising. Now, if the energies I put into something don't come through me, which is a very narrow corridor, like a laser beam that focuses the energy in a particular direction, and more importantly, away from the very ignorance from which is seeking. When we really understand the nature of the sense of self and relax with it so that we can see it arising, but it's not creating havoc because it's not being believed in as it arises. Then that energy that was invested in self and because it was in self, it was in form because form and self, as I mentioned, arise together. The self that knows and the form that holds what it knows, what the self knows, arise together. When that energy ceases, when that energy is relaxed, it's no longer dualistic. It's interconnected. Equally dispersed across all things. Felt as the formless itself. Felt as the sacred itself. Where has the sacred been hiding, we ask? Where has the sacred possibly been hiding? See, we have to 
we have to decipher the codes of this, of the mystery of how we confiscate everything according to what we believe it to be. And then that investment in holding and securing just what we know something to be, to be only that, is the tension that comes out or away from the sacred. Because the sacred can't be what you know it to be. Sacred, by definition, is wonder. Is an experience that takes shape outside of what we know it to be. So I'm not, I I just want to line us up with whatever practice you're doing in a wise direction. So that we're not thinking that there's some kind of payoff. We don't really know what it is, but some Sayadaw or Ajahn told us. When it's so available, when it's so accessible, when the possibility is so close, And if we haven't sufficiently explored our need for comfort, our need to be soothed, then it can't help but take that form and display of investing in the pleasant. It can't help it. It doesn't do it because it's mean. It does it because there's ignorance. It doesn't understand why it shouldn't do it. And so we see the value of what we're doing. And we see the limitation of what we're doing. And we look at both the value and the limitation. What's the value of bathing in comfort? Well, you get comfortable. It's pleasant as long as the bath water is warm. But where is that comfort coming from? Can I be accountable for the comfort and not ascribe it to the water? See, what this forces us to be when we see the nature of how the mind invests is total and complete accountability and withdrawing that investment. It's like if you knew that the bank had no financial backing, you'd withdraw your money. See, this isn't a formulaic system. This is not, I'll just follow these steps, somebody else's, you know, and then all of a sudden there'll be this prize. This is a question This is a journey of questioning. This is a journey of from wonder to wonder. What is a question but a wonder, a statement of one, a orientation of wonder to uncovering what? Wonder. 
If you're on too firm ground, you can be sure that it's self-driven. Because only the self can form that certainty and protection that form can offer. It's okay for a long period of time, but at some point, hopefully, there's a question like, where's the payoff here? I mean, what's going on here? But we're promised in this tradition, just be there another 100,000 lives. As if we knew how many lives we have yet to go. Right, let's see. See, it's endless. It, that way of thinking is endless, but it's all being encouraged through our self-doubt. This is where the whole thing has to rise up in strength. Come what may, I don't care anymore. Come what may. When you really don't care, you'll go anywhere. You'll explore anything. If you want to be safe, that'll compromise that exploration. If you want to be certain, that'll compromise that exploration. If you want to be formulaic, if you want to be structured, this is the Wild West. What is this thing called me? And I can see it, and let me just give you If I look at the forms of the world exclusively, then I only see from the formation of me. Because that's all the sense of self. The sense of self that knows what that is creates that thing by the memory of what it has known it to be. So I have to be here in order for that to be here. But if I'm interested in what's seeing the form, That's formless, and I can't, I have to, to, in order for that to be sensed, I can't be formed. See how it works? One's proportional, indirectly proportional to the other. If I'm formed, the formless is not. If I am formless, the formless, the form is not. And the quieter I become, the less formed life is. Because I'm not talking it into something. I'm, I'm withdrawing what has given it substance, which was my story, my language, my investment of terms and words. So in stillness, 
form can't sustain itself because it can only sustain itself as long as I'm wording it to death. So we begin to sense that. We begin to see that. We begin, that gets us interested. Oh, okay, so I get this now. I get, I get how this goes. And we, all the words we've heard, you know, be still and know you're God, or I don't know, whatever you've heard in whatever tradition you're in or whatever, starts, oh, okay, so wait a second. Oh, I get, I'm getting, I'm getting, I'm sensing this now. I'm getting this. I am beginning to understand this. And may I say, awareness grows on itself. The yearning for it grows from having experienced it over time. The more we experience, the more we yearn for what it offers. Not in a desiring, gotta have it kind of way, because that would just make it into a form. And in uh, whatever that Mahayana Sutta is, form is form, or form can be formless, or formlessness can be form. I mean, you can make it into, you can make the form into something that you want and chase after it as well, or it can be just what it is. And a funny thing happens when we allow it to be just what it is, is that we can play it on both sides. We, we can sit down in a chair not expecting it to just become a vacuous space and yet know at the same time that there's no differentiation between the expression of form or the arising of the formless. None. Zero. And still we take our seat. There's so much to say on this topic, and I'm already to the end of my time. I hope what I have done is given you a seed of curiosity, not a fear or I'm not going that way. Just, hmm, in my time, I want to know that. Okay, y'all. Thank you. Can we sit for a minute? So if, if you sit like pig pen with all the flies buzzing around, you know, and, and uh, peanuts, you know, the talk really didn't enter the door it was supposed to. <laughs> sit in the fullness of body.
Okay. So if you want to pull out your sheets, we'll sing this endearing melody. And if those who like to dance to it are welcome. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.